Hi, this is Lily DeHoya Sanderson, and you're listening to Choosing Glory. Thanks for joining me. This is the week we are studying Joseph Smith, Matthew chapter 1, which is the Joseph Smith translation account of the last verse of Matthew 23 from the New Testament and all of chapter 24 in Matthew 24 from the New Testament. So this is the answer that Christ gives to his apostles when they ask when these things shall come to be, speaking of the last days. And then also included in this week's study is Mark chapters 12 and 13 and Luke chapter 21. So a fair amount of reading to do this week, and I hope that you got a chance to read all of it or that you will get a chance because it's Wonderful material, and some of it, of course, repeats things that we've talked about before, but it's great to review this, and there is a lot to talk about concerning our main subject, which is Christ's second coming and the things that will precede it. So let's look at Joseph Smith, Matthew, to begin with, and I'm going to jump to verses 8 through 11. Let me read those. And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. I'm kind of cutting to this because these other things we've heard so many times, you know, of course, the destruction of the temple, the apostles will be hated. The chapter will talk about things we hear many times, the wars, the rumors of wars, the darkness of the sun, the moon being turned to blood, all kinds of things are discussed here. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them because I think that you've heard of them before. It's easy to look up information about these things if you need more. Let's focus on a few of these things, and this is why I start with verse 8, because doesn't this sound like what's going on now? Many shall be offended, and shall betray one another. Now, betrayal happens between people who are close, so that could be family members, or it could be dear friends, spouses, and shall hate one another. I was just talking with a neighbor earlier today about how much negativity there is and how much loss there seems to be in terms of caring for one another and respect in our society. So much more violence breaking out in so many places. Going on, verse 9, and many false prophets shall arise and shall deceive many. We see that even within our own church. We see different thought leaders, you know, influencers or whatever arising and then deceiving some people into thinking that they can be a part of God's kingdom on earth, and yet not have to be obedient to the covenant in one way or another. Of course, they don't say it that openly, but that's what's going on. Verse 10, and because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Of course, that stands out to us, I think, when we read, because we are seeing that. We're seeing the love of many wax cold, even the kind of love that we used to depend on between husband and wife, between parents and children, amongst siblings, amongst dear friends. We're just seeing the love of many waxing cold. And then finally, verse 11, but he that remaineth steadfast and is not overcome, the same shall be saved. Always we come back to a version of this message that if we keep to our covenant path, if we continue on that covenant path, if we keep trying to grow and serve the Lord and obey his commandments, then we will be saved in the last day, and God will be mindful of us. So a powerful promise with all this negative news. Now we're going to talk a little bit 
for a moment about something mentioned here in verse 12, which is, When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet concerning the destruction of Jerusalem, then you shall stand in the holy place. Whoso readeth, let him understand. Let's talk for a moment about the abomination of desolation. And I'm actually going to read a little bit from Mormon doctrine, which is Elder Bruce R. McConkie's kind of encyclopedic work about some of our basic doctrines. And he starts with this. Daniel spoke prophetically of a day when there would be the abomination that maketh desolate. And that's from Daniel 11.31 and 12.11. And the phrase was recoined in New Testament times to say the abomination of desolation. Aside from the prophetic setting and relying solely on the plain meaning of the words, we would conclude that this phrase, abomination of desolation, would have reference to some great act or status of corruption and befoulment, of contamination and filthiness, which would bring to pass destruction, ruination, devastation, and desolation. Such is the case. These conditions of desolation, born of abomination and wickedness, were to occur twice in fulfillment of Daniel's words. Okay, so just recapping for a moment. Abomination of desolation is first mentioned by Daniel, kind of the language has changed a little bit in the New Testament, but that this must refer to some great corruption, befoulment, contamination, filthiness that destroys, ruins, devastates, and desolates. And it is specifically referring to Jerusalem. So let's go on for a moment. The first, this is McConkie again, the first was to be when the Roman legions under Titus in the year 70 AD laid siege to Jerusalem destroying and scattering the people, leaving not one stone upon another in the desecrated temple. And remember, that is kind of what prompts the question of the apostles concerning when shall these things come, because Christ had just said that about the temple that not one stone would be left on another. Going on with Elder McConkie's Mormon doctrine. And spreading such terror and devastation as has seldom, if ever, been equaled on earth. Of those days, Moses had foretold that the straightness of the siege would cause parents to eat their own children and great loathing and evil to abound. That's from Deuteronomy chapter 28. Can you imagine? We're talking about, as McConkie says, something that seldom happens at this intense level. Then skipping a little bit down. Continuing with Elder McConkie, then of the same events, our Lord was led to say, for then in these days shall be great tribulation on the Jews and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Skipping a little, and except those days should be shortened, there should none of their flesh be saved. Then, speaking of the last days, of the days following the restoration of the gospel, again shall the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet be fulfilled, and that is from our Joseph Smith, Matthew chapter 1, verses 31 and 32. That is, Jerusalem again will be under siege, for I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. Again, the severity of the siege and the extremities of brutal conflict born of wickedness and abomination will lead to great devastation and desolation. And the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished, and half of the city shall go forth into captivity that's quoting Zechariah chapter 14. It will be during this siege that Christ will come, the wicked will be destroyed, and the millennial era commenced. 
In a general sense, McConkie continues, this expressive designation, abomination of desolation, also describes the latter-day terrors to be poured out upon the wicked wherever they may be. And then, skipping almost to the end of this entry, go forth amongst the Gentiles for the last time. So this is the admonition of the Lord because of this coming abomination of desolation. And as many as the mouth of the Lord shall name to bind up the law and seal up the testimony and prepare the saints for the hour of judgment, which is to come that their souls may escape the wrath of God, the desolation of abomination which awaits the wicked both in this world and the world to come. That's from section 88 in the Doctrine and Covenants, verses 84 to 85. So there is an escape from this horrible thing. That's the good news. Okay, we were talking about a lot of bad news here, but this is the good news. And this is why we are gathering Zion, because these prophecies are going to be fulfilled in the coming days. We're starting to see the beginning of some of this incredible wickedness, but it's going to get worse as prophesied, and we need not fear if we are bound up in the law and we seal up our testimonies. This prepares the saints for the hour of judgment which is to come, that our souls may escape the wrath of God, the desolation of abomination which awaits the wicked in this world and in the world to come. And that was again quoting section 88. So there is safety from this kind of terror. And this will come to those who are on the covenant path, who make and strive to keep sacred covenants. Again, please hear me. The Lord has never expected his people to perfect themselves. He does expect us to be diligent. He expects us to be constantly repenting and working toward becoming a better version of ourselves. And coming to him with that humble and earnest inquiry, what lack I yet? What should I work on next so that I can continue? This is not in anxiety or fear or frenzy. Those things should not accompany the covenant path follower. It should be with faith and with humility and a desire to continue in this wonderful path effectively so that we don't just make covenants and then drift or coast or try to rest on our laurels, whatever they may be. That's the antithesis. That is the slothful and the lazy that the Lord warns against. Those would be the the five foolish virgins that are going to be talked about also in these chapters. Now, there are some things I also want to mention from Joseph Smith Matthew. Again, that's very parallel to Matthew 24, but looking from the version that is in the Pearl of Great Price, where we have the Joseph Smith translation of this chapter I'm going to continue with verse 16. And woe unto them that are with child, and unto them that give suck in those days. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I do want to mention something that's been on my mind a lot lately. Obviously, this warning sounds like you know those who are pregnant or nursing a baby will be even more jeopardized in this terrible time because they are so devoted to their child, and it's difficult for them to do normal things or do much to protect themselves. But I had an interesting conversation with one of my sons lately, it was Harper, and he was asking, why have women sort of allowed, to a large extent, the whole transgender movement, meaning the part where it's men who are now defining themselves or identifying as women, How is it that women have sort of allowed this to take hold so much when it is invading women's 
private spaces and women's sports. And I mean, in some very scary ways, you know, that, as I said, women's safe spaces, locker rooms, restrooms, public restrooms as well, but in the schools with our children. So women have not allowed it to happen. It's a little bit harsh, but you know what he meant. He was just saying women haven't fought back a lot. In fact, some women have sort of advocated for that, and we still see women doing that. There are some women's voices being raised that are protesting those things and where they are seeking to gain better protections against that kind of change and interruption of what has been traditionally protected for women. Nevertheless, my first answer for Harper was just kind of off the top of my head. And I said, well, I think part of it is at least is because women are so oriented relationally. There are all kinds of research studies that have been done and just our own intuitive understanding or experiential understanding of how women are. They tend to think about relationships. It's natural for them to think about how does the other person feel, whatever. I'm not saying all women are perfect at this or always consistent about it, but there is definitely a difference even in the hardwiring of the brain between women and men and, you know, who knows exactly where that is. But this is part of that divine division of labor. I mean, men have to be kind of singly focused to go slay the dragon every day. But, you know, women are designed to be the keepers of hearth and home. And again, of course, we overlap in our responsibilities from time to time and we should help each other. All of that doesn't mean that women are not capable or that men aren't capable of being relational, but there are these orientations that are different, that are part of the divine division of labor that God references in the proclamation on family. So I think you know what I'm talking about here. But anyways, I was talking to my son Harper, and I thought about this later and was talking more about it with Chris. I realized that, at least in my understanding at this point, I would say that Women who are already trying to focus on maintaining relationships, when they are mothers, that makes them even more vulnerable. And we see in many cases, certainly in my clinical practice, I've seen that women who are mothers are particularly vulnerable because they are always trying to think of their children as well as themselves. In fact, often their children before themselves. Now, don't get me wrong. I know that not every woman is the same, but we see this orientation that is very natural for women with children. And I realized that, again, in my clinical practice, that many times women are in unsafe situations, maybe even in their marriages. They're not in a completely safe situation, and yet their thought is not about, like, what do I need to do to be safe? Their thought is, what do I need to do to protect my children? And they often put the safety and well-being of spouse and their husbands and their children ahead of their own safety or concerns because they are so relational and particularly toward their children. So it hit me that this is part of the meaning here. Women who are mothers, and especially with dependent children, I mean, when your children are grown, it doesn't mean you stop thinking about them, but obviously they are no longer in as obvious need of protection So this is particularly with mothers who have children at home still. I think it includes that. I think when God says that, when he says, and woe unto them that are with child, I don't think that just means pregnant. I mean, it obviously means that, but I think it's any mother who has children when hard things happen is particularly vulnerable because her orientation is towards protection of the children. And good men do that too. Thank heavens. And thank heavens for all good men 
who take on themselves that priesthood responsibility that is sacred, that is given to men by God, not just through the holding of the priesthood, but also just by virtue of being men with certain strengths and certain capacities that women don't have, that they orient themselves toward protection of women and children. That is marvelous, but it's receding rapidly in our day, as we have seen in these efforts that Satan has made so successfully to try to eliminate any differences between the sexes and any of the protections that that were there because no, you know, if you protect women, you're being condescending and patriarchal. I mean, all that silly stuff so that, that it's kind of every man and woman for him or herself. So I think that this is really resonant to me that that women who are, especially mothers of minor children or dependent children, are particularly vulnerable. And men, please, please make sure you are stepping up and that you see it as one of your God-given responsibilities to protect and defend women and children. And particularly being aware that, that your wives and your mothers sometimes, depending on your circumstances, are oriented toward the protection of the children, and they really are blessed by your help and support. Abandonment and betrayal of those sacred responsibilities is not going to be without a consequence. We need to work together and build this collaboration, this synergy between men and women in the church. If we're going to build Zion, that is going to be required that we work together, that we collaborate, that we use those divine strengths, those divine orientations to maximize the blessings that come from the synergy between men and women. Well, I spent a lot more time on that than I thought, huh? Anyway, verse 20, I'm still in Joseph Smith, Matthew, and except those days should be shortened, there should none of their flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, according to the covenant, those days shall be shortened. Let's look at what it says about the elect of God. Again, going back to Mormon doctrine, which is a resource that I've really enjoyed. I'm sure you can tell. This is what Elder McConkie says. They comprise, speaking of the elect of God, comprise a very select group, an inner circle of faithful members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So not all the members of the church, but an inner circle of faithful members. Now, this is not a club. This is not a formal distinction. It is something that we self-select. We can become a part of that select group or inner circle of faithful members. Going on, Elder McConkie says, they are the portion of church members who are striving with all their hearts to keep the fullness of the gospel law in this life so that they can become inheritors of the fullness of gospel rewards in the life to come. Looking again, striving with all their hearts to keep the fullness of of the gospel law in this life. They're not picking and choosing. They're not just obeying their favorite commandments or the ones that are easy. They are looking with all their hearts to keep the fullness of the gospel law in this life. Okay, let's look at just verse 30 because I thought it was interesting that this is repeated twice in Joseph Smith, Matthew, only once in Matthew 24, I believe, but twice here again, verse 30, because iniquity shall abound, the love of men shall wax cold. But he that shall not be overcome, the same shall be saved. You know, bad news, good news, but always ending with the good news in this case, which I, you know, was grateful for. And then, of course, and I know you saw this, but in verse 40, 
that day and hour no one knoweth, no, not the angels of God in heaven, but my Father only. So, you know, any attempts to really try to pin down the exact time of the second coming of Christ is an effort that is fruitless and vain. We don't need to know. We have the signs of the times. Of course, he talks about the fig tree, and he says, when the leaves come out on the fig tree, you can know that summer is nigh. Now, you probably know some of this, but each of the fruit trees has a different order of bloom and coming out with leaf, right? So there are probably other trees that I'm not familiar with that would enter into this lineup. But in our yard, we know that the apricot tree is going to get blossoms first and then leaf out. And then the peach tree and then the nectarine tree. And of course, there are other trees that are leafing out at this time as well. But as far as blossoms are concerned, there is that order to the fruits of the earth. And then apples, I believe, are later. And you can see this in the harvest time, right? Apricots are ripe earliest, and then peaches and nectarines, and apples are a later harvest. Well, the fig tree is the last of the fruits to blossom and then to set the fruit and to be harvested. So he's saying... When you see the leaves on the fig tree, you can know that the time is coming shortly. Now, anytime God speaks of chronology or a passing of time, you know, it's according to what he sees. So when he says, behold, I come quickly, it's a relative term to those of us on this planet who have to deal with time. Because that has been said. And remember what one of the first signs of the second coming is that is prophesied. It's the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. So that's almost 200 years ago now. That's just seven years shy of 200 years ago. So that was a sign of the second coming of the Lord. So God has stretched this out over quite a period of time. Now, I think the signs are coming more quickly and in a, at a more furious level and pace. And I don't think it's going to be 200 years before the Lord comes. I'm, I would be pretty confident in saying that. I think the time is coming I'm not worried about setting a year on that, but there are not too many other prophecies to be fulfilled. Still some, of course, remain, but many of them could be accomplished in a relatively brief period of time. There needs to be a war, and this is mentioned also in this chapter, that all nations shall gather against Israel, and it will lead up to that last big battle of Armageddon, where the Jews are about to be destroyed and Christ will come and set his foot upon the Mount of Olives. It will cleave in twain and allow the armies of Israel to escape into that opening in the mountain. And then the Lord will descend and, of course, end the war, save his people. And that will be one of his later comings. We don't know if he has come already to Adam on Dayaman. He could have, but we don't know. And It has been spoken of by prophets that the Lord has already suddenly come to his temple because temples have been built in these latter days and the Lord comes to his house, each of his houses. So there are several comings. And I remember hearing this when I was a kid and I really liked it that we speak of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But really, we should maybe more accurately remind ourselves that it is the second comings, plural, of the Lord that we are watching for because he has many places he will come, suddenly to his temple, to Adam on Diamond. You know, of course, he came to Joseph Smith, and the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ was another sign of the times. It was a sign of the second coming. So there are many times when the Lord comes. He comes to the new Jerusalem, to the Zion that will be there. He will come to the old Jerusalem and save 
the armies of Israel from utter destruction. So it's the second comings of the Lord that we are watching for and preparing for, hopefully to be ready when he comes. So, of course, lots of other good things here that I'm not going to talk about. Mark 12, I'll mention that a lot of that we had discussed before in the writings of these stories in other Gospels. Verse 30, I want to mention from Mark 12. Let me turn to that. It's not an unusual statement, but I had a note here in my Bible in the margins that reminded me of this, and I thought I would share it. This is one of the places where the scribes and Pharisees are trying to trip up Christ, and so they ask him all these questions. And this one is, again, one of the simple, which is the first commandment. And in verse 29 of Mark 12, Mark 12, 29, Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And that was a big deal because remember that in so many societies, they worshipped all kinds of gods, a god of the harvest, a god of this, a god of that, or a goddess of this. So it was very different to believe in monotheism, one God. And in times of persecution, it has been recorded that if the Jews, who have been persecuted in pretty horrible ways from time to time, and again, persecution is ramping up against that people, really no excuse for the evil that is done there, but that they may die with this on their lips. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And that's a very important principle to the followers of Jehovah, that he is one God, not many, one God. Then in verse 30, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. Now, I like the extension of this idea because often we say to love the Lord with all thy heart, you know, and then love thy neighbor as thyself, which is repeated here about the neighbor in the next verse. But this is something that we read in other parts of Scripture, that we should love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So this was the note that I had concerning mind. I made a special mark there for mind, and I wrote in the margin, and I don't even know when I wrote this, Obviously, quite a while ago, because I don't remember. But anyway, way of thinking that we should worship God in the way we think. And I like that. I'm glad I have that note in the margins. I actually put here also the word synthesis. Synthesis. And then another phrase that I have here in the margin concerning mind is divine intelligence. So let me just share quickly about that. What is synthesis? And the definition, one definition of the term synthesis is the combination of ideas to form a theory or a system. In other words, how do we combine the data that we collect just by observing and experiencing life? You know, we pick up information as we go. How do we combine that to form a larger picture? Do we understand how that works into the plan of salvation? Do we go back to gospel truths to coordinate the ideas that we are observing or learning in other settings and make sure that that matches, that it goes back to God's way of thinking, to divine intelligence, to light, truth, and intelligence? Or as section 90 talks about, things as they really are, the definition of truth. Are we seekers of truth? Do we recognize that all truth comes from God? So as we go through life, the things that we see, the way we think, does it connect us to the way God thinks, to his divine intelligence? 
so that we really can understand what truth is. And in a world like this, with so many different voices, with so many different ideas, with so many bad ideas, with so many false Christs and deceivers and sophistry that we've talked about often, are we worshiping God in our mind? Are we loving him in our mind? I've talked about critical thinking before as one of the antidotes to sophistry. And critical thinking, again, are we paying attention to things and coordinating that into what God has taught us that is true? When I went through my master's program, which was the Master's of Social Work degree at UNLV, and, you know, I was really grateful that there was a school available. I really feel like this was all divinely orchestrated when God sent me back to school because it wasn't my intention to go. But he directed me very clearly to the MSW and all these therapy degrees that are available now, almost all of them, unless it's a Christian school, but almost all of them are very secular, very anti-Christian in some ways, depending on the school. But there is a lot of it that is very secular. The therapies have become extremely secular and, and very concerned with activism, social justice kinds of activism, much of which is contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ in absolutely different ways and contrasting ways and destructive ways. So as I went through the master's program, I was so grateful that I already had studied the gospel and that I felt confident, not that there isn't more to learn, but I was confident in my knowledge of the plan of salvation and of scripture so that as I went through the program, anything that didn't line up with the gospel or the plan, I knew was false. It didn't beat me up. I didn't question myself about like, well, I wonder if I should believe this. I didn't because it was like, oh, if it lines up with scripture and it's consistent with what God has revealed, I know it's true. And if it doesn't, I know it's false. So basically, I was able to use the scriptures and my knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ and invited the spirit into that mix too to help me know clearly the truth from the error. And it was like a filter. It was sort of like my personal Urim and Thummim to translate what I was hearing into either truth or falsehood. And it was clear because the gospel is the truth. And I do speak to some other people who are in these kinds of programs that are entering the same profession or have been in it. And sometimes I've always been happy to speak to students who are struggling with that because sometimes they're hearing things and they're saying, well, they're making these compelling arguments for these ideas that are not consistent with gospel. And we can be confident if we use the wonderful information that we have, the light, truth, and intelligence that God gives us, we can be confident about what is truth and what will add to our understanding of goodness and what will take us away. So I love that I bothered to put these notes in here once, that we need to Love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And remember, Zion is one heart and one mind. And think of all the different thinking that happens just even in our own wards or our own branches, in our own family. And if we are going to become a Zion people, which is our goal, we need to become one mind, a people of one mind as well as one heart with no poor. And how do we do that? We line up with God's mind. We absorb his divine intelligence as we continue to seek for truth. We synthesize this. We understand how these ideas combine to support revealed truth, 
not to contest it. And if we find ourselves arguing with the words of the prophets or the words of the scripture, we're on the wrong side, brothers and sisters. I mean, it's just that simple, right? Now we're back to Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. What does that say? Let's see. (laughs) Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In other words, if we are disagreeing with the Lord, we are wrong. We should not trust our own thoughts that are different from his. We need to, in all our ways, acknowledge him and he shall direct thy path. So that is the safety path, the path of safety and truth. So critical thinking is a part of this, you know, assess, interpret, understand, evaluate, and come to Christ and come to his mind that we may all become one mind, which is essential for Zion. We can only control our own. Can't force anybody else to think like anything. I mean, we all get our own choice on this, but we each can make this pledge to come to be consistent with divine intelligence and worship God in our minds as well as our hearts. Okay, Matthew 25 has some important parables in this chapter, and they're, again, mostly familiar. I'm going to mention just a couple of things about them. Not a comprehensive treatment, as you can imagine. We have the parable of the ten virgins. We talk about this a lot lately, don't we? Because we are in the last days, and maybe even the last of the last days, relatively speaking. And Christ likens the kingdom of heaven to ten virgins, which take their lamps and go out to meet the bridegroom. And five were wise, five foolish. Those that are foolish took their lamps, but no oil. And those that are wise take their vessels with oil, as well as their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. At midnight, there's a cry, behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet them. And all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish say to the wise, give us your oil for our lamps are gone out. But the wise say, no, lest there not be enough for us and you, but you better go and buy some more for yourselves from the ones who sell. And when they go to buy, the bridegroom comes and they that are ready go in with him to the marriage and the door is then shut. And after the foolish virgins come and say, Lord, Lord, open to us. And he says, verily, I say unto you, I know you not. Watch, therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. And this message, of course, is repeated again and again in Scripture. Watch, prepare, and watch, because we don't know when the Savior will come exactly. And maybe we'll die before the Savior comes. So, you know, we should be prepared. What's that old country song, Live Like You Were Dying? Basically, it's the same message. Like, we don't know when our day will come to meet the Lord, whether through death or through the coming of Christ, we need to be prepared. And if we're being slothful or lazy or we're procrastinating, that's not going to work well. (laughs) That message is repeated again and again. Now, as is often clarified, this is not selfishness on the part of the wise virgins. Sometimes people have said in the past that, well, why didn't they share? Well, it's the kind of oil you can't share because it's not real oil. It's a metaphor. And it's a metaphor for what? It's a metaphor for testimony, the strength of our commitment, the keeping of our covenants, the magnification of our potential as children of God. Have we been conforming to the image of Christ? Have we been choosing glory? Have we been trying to live celestial law? Have we been on the path of sanctification? These things can't be shared. How do I pour that into somebody else's lamp? even if it's in my own. And it may be that I would love to share those things. And when I have an opportunity, I do share those things, but I can't pour them into somebody else's heart and mind. But it's available to all of us. There is no scarce commodity here. 
So it's not that, wow, there was just enough oil for five. No, there is enough oil for all if we do the things that create that accumulation, that drop by drop that comes from being on the path to sanctification, of daily repentance, of seeking to see the face of God, to conform to the image of Christ. It has been pointed out that the percentage here or the proportion of wise to foolish is pretty interesting because these are obviously all people who are waiting for the bridegroom. So that's not necessarily even all the members of the church, but they would all be members and they have come out to pretend or at least seem to be prepared for the bridegroom's coming and five were more prepared and five were not. So interesting proportion. Will it be half of those who are watching for the Lord? I don't know. And I'm not trying to make a definite statement on that. Sometimes we wonder if it'll even be 50% of the people who could be prepared, who will be prepared. Straight is the gate, narrow is the way, and relatively few there be that find it. Are we on that path? And again, if we're not, it's not because there's not room for us at the inn. It has nothing to do with the available space in the kingdom of God or the available space in Zion. The Lord's arms are outstretched all the day long, and any who desires Zion can receive that Zion life, that Zion covenant, and live it. There's no scarce commodity in the kingdom of God. Nothing is limited. He will give the same to one as he would give to all who choose to live in such a way that they can receive the blessings that God desires to give us. It's up to us, as usual, because God granteth unto men according to their desires. I quote Alma 29 a lot, don't I? Okay, another parable here in Matthew 25 is the parable of the talents. One gets five, one gets two, one gets one. The one guy buries his talent, doesn't increase it. The two turns it into four, the five turns it into ten. I think it's important to notice that not everybody is, you know, starts on a level playing field in this earth. And I think we worry about that too much. And sometimes in our society, of course, there's this big push right now for equality of outcome and reparations and things like that, trying to level the playing field. But here we see very clearly in this parable that God is saying, like, it's not a level playing field. Some people are given more and some people less in this life. But when it comes to the potential for the things of eternity, we all have the same opportunity, other than those who are somehow limited mentally or whatever, and the Lord will make that determination of those who really didn't have an opportunity to exercise their agency in this life. Of course, they'll be given that chance in their next life. Or some who didn't need to exercise their agency, so they had already qualified for the celestial kingdom and they needed only to obtain a body. But other than those groups, the rest of us who have access to making choices, all could make the choices that the one with five talents and the one with two made, which is to increase our talents. And I think that this is important to not compare. We hear all the time, right, that comparison is the thief of joy. And instead of comparing and worrying about like, well, I think that guy's got a little more than I do, whatever it is, that's not the point. The point is to improve what we have. So let's think in terms of stewardship here rather than actual like sort of monetary value or even, you know, how many talents. And and let me notice again that talent here is not referring to, you know, singing, dancing, you know, playing an instrument or some artistic expression or whatever. He's not talking about that. 
He's talking about a coin, right? A talent was a coin, so it had monetary value. But moreover, what he's talking about is stewardship. Stewardship over what we have been given. And then let me also mention, because sometimes we get sort of caught talking about those other kinds of talents. You know, somebody's good at math, somebody's a good athlete, somebody's an artist, whatever. And those things are not the currency of the kingdom. God refers to spiritual gifts as an important thing to seek after. He never says, you know, go after a lot of worldly gain. He doesn't say that. He does say that some people will, you know, if they have sought the kingdom of heaven first, that they may also receive monetary means and resources so that they can do good in building up the kingdom. And that's why they would want it. But that's different. What we're talking about here are the spiritual gifts, trying to improve on who we are so that we have stewardship over ourselves and we magnify that potential through the atonement of Jesus Christ. We become a better version of ourselves as we go through life. We we magnify who we are. So at the end of our journey, we are more than we were when we began. We don't just stay where we are. We don't think we're good enough and just try to say, like, if I coast, I'll just head right into the kingdom. No, it's this improvement, this idea of taking stewardship over the things that we are given and being righteous stewards, doing what the Lord would want us to do with them, improving upon whatever our gifts are, going to the Lord and seeking the best gifts of the Spirit, not at anybody else's expense, because again, there's no scarce commodity here. We can all have access to these spiritual gifts if we use our talents in the way that the Lord is talking about here. I hope that makes sense. But I think, you know, to conclude here, we go to verse 29, for everyone that hath shall be given and he shall have abundance, but from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath. And again, he's not talking about material goods. He's saying those who have fulfilled their stewardships in appropriate ways, they have increased. They have allowed the Lord to bless them through their own efforts so that they were able to have a harvest. And the Lord gave them that harvest. And there will be a greater stewardship to come. If we have been good stewards here, he will help us increase those stewardships in the life to come so that there will be eternal progression in the highest kingdom. And he says that here, right? Where does he say that? Ah, yes, in verse 21, his Lord said unto him, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. And notice that that is the exact same message given to both the one who turned his five talents into ten and the one who turned his two talents into four. It's exactly the same. He doesn't say like, oh, well, you have ten, you get more now in the hereafter, and you only have four, so good job, but not that good. It's like, no, you magnified your gifts. You magnified those spiritual gifts. You came closer to being what your potential was. So you were a good steward over your own life, over your own choices to bring them to God, to give your will and your agency to God. And I now can trust you with much greater stewardships in the hereafter because I can turn my back on you and know that you will continue to be a seeker of truth and a maximizer of potential 
Anyway, important message here. And then we've talked about this, but quite a long time ago now, I think in the Doctrine and Covenants, actually, we jumped to Matthew 25 once and talked about this last parable of the king who is going to separate the sheep from the goats. The sheep on his right hand, the goats on his left. Those are verses 31 or 32 and 33 of Matthew 25. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, this is verse 34, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was unhungered. This is so beautiful, right? This is so beautiful. I have to read it. For I was unhungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison and ye came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered and fed thee, or thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger and took thee in, or naked and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick or in prison and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was unhungered, and ye gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me not in. Naked, and ye clothed me not. Sick and in prison, and ye visited me not. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee in hunger, or a thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee? Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye did it not to one of the least of these, ye did it not to me. Powerful message here. And notice, this is the ultimate dividing line that Christ is talking about. In the last sifting, sheep from the goats. Why? Because we took care of those who were the least of these. Not just our friends, not just our family, but those that needed help. What did we do? Was our heart open to them? Or did we pass by on the other side? This is the capstone. And we've talked about this quote before from Marvin Ashton, Elder Marvin Ashton from April 1992, I believe, a speech called The Tongue Can Be a Sharp Sword. Great speech. In that speech, there is the conclusion given about what is the sign, so to speak, or the symptom of coming to Christ. How can we tell if we're coming to Christ? And the conclusion offered in that speech is that the best and clearest indicator that we are progressing spiritually and coming to Christ is the way we treat other people. How do we treat other people? Now, I don't mean to dismiss family, by the way, because there are some people who are extremely generous to strangers and are not to their own family. So, you know, charity does begin at home, and we must fulfill those responsibilities that we have to those who have claim on us for good treatment, for kindness, for love, for protection, for safety, for respect, for consistent showing up 
for kindness. All those things are so important in our marriages, in our families. And we need not to stop there. We need to also serve the least of these. So wonderful thing for us to consider, brothers and sisters. How are we doing in the way that Elder Ashton suggests, demonstrates whether or not we are coming to Christ? The way we treat other people. And again, don't skip our marriages and our families, but let's go forward beyond that as well. Let's take care of the family and those relationships and then go further to make sure that we are available to help those in need. The church makes it very easy for us to participate in humanitarian work and other charitable causes. I hope that we don't limit ourselves to that, although if that's all that we can do, that's great, because the church does a lot of things. But the idea is that in our hearts, we would give if we could, and we would give more if we could, and that we try to be directed by the Lord in those things, but with an eye open to that. And it's not just monetary or material resource help that I'm talking about. I'm also talking about goodness and kindness and helpfulness. I mean, when we go about our errands or we're running around town or even in our workplaces, do we help others? Are we keeping an eye out? You know, it's really wonderful when we start to do that, right? And I'm not saying I'm perfect at it. I'm so often in a hurry. I try not to be in such a hurry that I skip opportunities to help But, you know, are we in a place where we can help somebody who's having a hard time loading up their car or in a grocery store, help them, you know, whatever? Are we kind as we drive? You know, it's kind of scary that sometimes at the end of an event, you know, a concert or an athletic competition of some time, a game or, or even it could be general conference or something and people drive like they're crazy and they don't let other people enter in. I mean, I realize there's a system and I'm not asking you to ruin the whole system if there's, you know, if both lines are taking turns, something like that. But, but I am saying, are we thinking about it? How are we at those athletic competitions? I've always been embarrassed for our church or some of our church when I family, and we haven't done this very often. Some of you have gone much more than we have, but we went once to an athletic, it was a football game, BYU at Notre Dame. And let me tell you, those Catholics are pretty good sports. And the fans there, because we had seats amongst some of the Notre Dame fans, they were very gracious to us in our BYU gear and so on. Very friendly and kind and no hassling or nastiness. Same thing happened when we were in Georgia Tech once for a BYU game there. It was a football game as well. And let me tell you, those those Baptists are good Christians sometimes because BYU really spanked them. I mean, it was kind of a runaway. And as they left and they saw this little block of BYU fans, they turned and as they passed us and said, good game. Thanks for coming to Georgia Tech. And I thought with sadness about some of the fans that I've seen at BYU games in our home stadium, the Bell Edwards Stadium or the Marriott Center for basketball or the Fieldhouse for volleyball, etc. Are we as good fans as the Catholics or as the Baptists? Honestly, I don't know. I would say that definitely not always. And we have to do better. How do we treat other people? Are we emissaries of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are we letting our light shine so that we are not letting our love wax cold in certain settings because it's convenient for us to be less polite or less kind or more of a jerk? Okay, there's my pitch. And let me tell you, it's not just athletic competitions. (laughs) I mean, all over the place. Are we really trying to live our covenants? Are we representing Jesus Christ? Are we coming to Christ and showing it the way we treat other people? Because that matters to God. And if it's not clear in Matthew 25, I don't know what to say. I think it's fascinating that 
and touching, very tender to me, that when Joseph was in Carthage. And, you know, Chris and I had a marvelous opportunity to be in Nauvoo this past summer. There was a singles conference there that I was invited to speak in, and we had a few extra days to visit around Nauvoo. And we took one afternoon where we had some free time and we drove to Carthage. And, you know, I was almost, I told Chris, I said, I don't know if I can handle the sadness that I always feel there. But then I couldn't miss the opportunity to go. I think the last time we went was for the Nauvoo Temple Open House, which it was like 20 years before. So it had been a long time since we had been in that beautiful spot. And a lot of changes had happened. We were able to attend the temple, which was wonderful. You really do feel the spirit of Joseph Smith there in Nauvoo. But we did take that opportunity to drive out to Carthage. And as much as I weep over what happened there, it's such sacred ground that I was really glad we could go and do the tour with the sweet missionaries. But think about what song he asked John Taylor to sing there just shortly before his martyrdom at the hands of a mob. He wanted to hear a poor wayfaring man of grief. And the words of that song are directly from Matthew 25. It's a version of this story put to music. Such a tender song. I hope we sing that song with our families or on our own, or we listen to a rendition of it on our playlists, and we think about ourselves. Would we do the same? Now, can I just make a plea to all music directors or anybody, even with your family, if you're singing this hymn, please don't just sing the first three verses. <laughs> please don't. Or the first four. I don't remember how many are in the lines of the music. But please, even if you have to skip a few verses, make sure you sing the last two. Because without those last two, we don't get that beautiful resolution of the story where Christ reveals himself to this person who even was willing to die for Christ, or for the stranger, I should say, for the least of these. So please make sure you sing those last two verses whenever you sing A Poor Wayfaring Man of Grief, or read through those words and read all of them. Remember how beautiful that is. Let's see if I can remember the words. I think this is the second to the last verse. In prison I saw him next condemned to meet a traitor's doom at morn. The crowd of lying tongues I stemmed and honored him mid shame and scorn. My friendship's utmost zeal to try, he asked if I for him would die. My flesh was weak, my blood ran chill, but the free spirit cried, I will. And then the last verse, then in a moment to my view, the stranger started from disguise. The tokens in his hands I knew. The Savior stood before mine eyes. He spake, and my poor name he named. Of me thou hast not been ashamed. These deeds shall thy memorial be. Fear not, thou didst them unto me. Forgive the stumbling. I don't have the words in front of me, but... I love the song. The prophet Joseph loved that song. And as it was with Joseph, so should it be for us when we are going through our hardest times. We can remember the words of that song. We can sing it or listen to it and think that what we are going through, the sacrifices we make, the trouble in our lives, that the things that we do to help others at sacrifice to ourselves or that sometimes seem to be rewarded with 
pain and punishment rather than positive things, that all of this is helping us to serve the Savior when we are serving even the least of these. Oh, I could go off on that for a while, but let's not. Let's go on and let me share something that I've been thinking about for quite a while now to kind of wrap this up. My daughter Bethany shared this article with me that I found fascinating and kind of ties into some things that I have mentioned before about a Messianic Jew named Jonathan Kahn. Maybe you remember when we were speaking of some of the Old Testament prophecies that Jonathan Kahn has some very interesting videos on YouTube, and I'm sure he's available other places. He's written a few books that are very much about the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And he uses the New Testament as well because he has become converted to Jesus Christ. But anyway, he's mentioned by another author that was the author of this article. Her name is Naomi Wolf. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with her. She's one of the icons of third wave feminism. So very liberal, even leftist in many ways. She's identified that way. And I probably don't vote like she does at all. <laughs> I mean, probably not much anyway. I don't know if there's any overlap at all. She's a professor and she is an author, an American author. She wrote this article on Substack and it's called Have the Ancient Gods Returned? Is a seemingly far-fetched premise unfolding after all? That's her title and subtitle. And she wrote this just recently, February 23rd of this year, 2023. Now, like I said, I normally wouldn't agree much with this woman, but some interesting overlapping is happening. And certainly the last days make for some interesting overlapping of ideas by those who are seekers. So I'm going to read you part of this article. Forgive me, I'll comment on it as I go along. She begins with this. These days, to my surprise, people want to talk to me about evil. Now, I will say that Naomi Wolf has described herself as being somewhat detached from God and, you know, kind of secular, as, you know, some Jews are quite secular, but they still identify with Judaism as a race. Anyway, and I'm just selecting some parts of this article, so some of these paragraphs are connected and some are not. So please be patient with this. But that's her first statement. People want to talk to me about evil. And then she thinks about some things. She says, I concluded that I had looked at the events of the past two and a half years, speaking of the COVID pandemic, using all of my classical education, my critical thinking skills, my knowledge of Western and global history and politics, and that using these tools, I could not explain the years 2020 to present. Indeed, I could not explain them in ordinary material, political, or historical terms at all. This is not how human history ordinarily operates. I could not explain the way the Western world simply switched from being based at least overtly on values of human rights and decency to values of death, exclusion, and hatred overnight, en masse, that means as a whole group or a large group, without reference to some metaphysical evil that goes above and beyond fallible, blundering human agency. When ordinary would-be tyrants try to take over societies, there is always some flaw, some human impulse undoing the headlong rush toward a negative goal. There are always factions or rogue lieutenants in ordinary human history. There's always a miscalculation or a blunder or a security breach or differences of opinion at the top. And then she gives several examples, but just let me mention a couple, like Mussolini, 
the dictator in Italy during World War II, but she said he was kind of slowed down in some of his actions by having to negotiate with the king of Portugal. And Stalin, who had Trotsky, who was coming after him, you know, and trying to present an opposite view. And Hitler, of course, had some of his lieutenants and some even high up ranking officers who plotted to kill him because they could see the crazy. So she's saying that typically, you know, just in human society, when evil emerges in one leader, there is an opposing force, even amongst the people close to them, that they see when things have gone too far. But then after discussing that, she's saying that in the COVID thing, there seemed to not be any opposing force. There were voices that protested some of the actions that were taken, but they were very difficult to hear because the basic institutions were all lined up together on one side of the argument. So she goes on and says, I reluctantly came to the conclusion that human agency alone could not coordinate a highly complicated set of lies about a virus and propagate the lies in perfect uniformity around an entire globe in hundreds of languages and dialects. And she's talking about like the lockdowns and the mandates, things that really hurt people. I mean, Australia was very severe in lockdowns. Some other countries were as well. We were pretty severe, depending on which state you were in the United States. Some of them Again, they destroyed businesses. Remember, churches were closed, but abortion clinics were open. Liquor stores were open, but you couldn't have church. And then look what happened to our children. Just the masking of children was absurd. Of course, they couldn't even wear the masks correctly, but look at how inhibiting that was to even their social and emotional progress or well-being, as well as, of course, the educational damage that was done. And long after, we had great evidence that showed that children were the least affected. So... Instead of, you know, pulling back on some of these things, these basic institutions, you know, government, education, the media, were all kind of lined up trying to support some of these things that did so much damage to so many people. And then she says, also, look at the speed of change. Institutions turned overnight into negative mirror images of themselves. And see, one example would be like education, which you know, seemed to be pro-children and pro-whatever, but, you know, almost overnight, although some of that change was slower and more subtle, of course, but it seemingly turned overnight, she says, into negative mirror images of themselves, where they're not thinking about the kids in the case of education, with demonic policies replacing what had been, at least on the surface, angelic ones. Human history change is not that lightning fast. And then she talks a little bit about a book or the idea of a book that was written by a Scottish journalist named Charles Mackey that was first published in 1841. So it's a long time ago, but it's been referenced in connection with the pandemic. It's called Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds. So maybe you've heard about that mass formation psychosis and things like that that talk about how people can have this sort of mob mentality and do some pretty crazy things. And she gives a few examples like the Crusades or alchemy or tulip mania in Holland or the Salem witch trials where people seem to go crazy in these, you know, certain locations for a little while. But then she goes on and says, but all of these examples of mass frenzy had dissidents, critics and skeptics at the time. None of these lasted for years as a dominant, uninterrupted delusional paradigm. What we have lived through since 2020 is so sophisticated, so massive, so evil, and executed in such inhumane unison 
that it cannot be accounted for without venturing into metaphysics. Metaphysics, meaning, you know, beyond the rational or tangible material world, you know, meaning even the supernatural or good and evil, you know, light and darkness as pertains to good and evil. And she goes on and says, I speak as a devoted rationalist. So her orientation in life has always been toward the very rational material world. And here she's saying, I don't think we can explain this unless we go into a discussion of metaphysics. Continuing, she says, I concluded that I was starting to believe in God in more literal terms than I had before. So again, she was more of a secular Jew, but she starts to believe in God in literal terms. Because this evil was so impressive, it must be directed at something at least as powerful that was all good. And that is a fascinating way that some people come to a knowledge of God is by noticing evil. Because they realize that to every sort of action, there has to be an equal and opposite reaction. I mean, one of Newton's laws of motions, but I guess it's more than that. It's just the existence of something so evil must mean that there is the existence of the opposite. Because things have to balance out. There must be something that is all good. Skipping later, she says, Then I heard of a pastor named Jonathan Kahn, who had written a book titled The Return of the Gods. The title resonated with me. Though I don't agree with everything in his book, Pastor Kahn's central argument that we have turned away from the Judeo-Christian God and thus we opened a door into our civilization for the negative spirits of the gods to repossess us, feels right. Jonathan Kahn is a Messianic Jewish minister. He is the son of Holocaust survivor. Formerly a secular atheist, Kahn had a near-death experience as a young man that led him to accept Jesus, or as he refers to him using the Hebrew name Yeshua, as his Lord and Savior. In his book, The Return of the Gods, his improbable and yet somehow hauntingly plausible thesis is the ancient, dark, and metaphysically organized forces, the gods of antiquity, have returned to our presumably advanced, secular, post-Christian civilization. So she's describing us in the West here as presumably advanced, secular, and post-Christian. Now we have noticed in polls over the last many years the shrinking of the number of people who say they believe in God, the rise of atheism. We have seen much and much, many, many fewer people who identify with any church membership or identify themselves as religious. And notice this seemingly harmless shift from people who used to say that they were religious to now, well, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. That's kind of the nouveau belief, right? That they say, I'm I'm spiritual, but not religious. But that is not affiliation with our Judeo-Christian God, that they don't want to be bound by any particular set of commandments or a covenant path of any kind or requirements of membership or involvement, you know, attendance and all that kind of stuff. So when we hear this from way too many of our kids, but also adults who are saying, well, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. So we have this advanced, secular, post-Christian civilization we are now in. Naomi Wolf goes on, Pastor Khan's theme is that because we have turned away from our covenant with Yahweh, Jehovah, especially we in America and we in the West, and especially since the 1960s, which you remember was the hippies, right? 
So the cultural revolution and, and the revolt against traditional values, that was what characterized the 60s in the United States. Anyway, therefore, the ancient gods, or rather ancient pagan energies that had been vanquished by monotheism, we just talked about that, the belief in only one supreme being, God, Jehovah, that Judeo-Christian God, and exiled to the margins of civilization and human activity have seen an open door and thus a ready home to reoccupy in us. Let me say that again because I kind of interrupted it. Because we have turned away from our covenant with Jehovah, especially we in America and in the West, and especially since the 1960s, therefore the ancient gods, or rather ancient pagan energies, that had been vanquished by monotheism and exiled to the margins of civilization and human activity, have seen an open door and thus a ready home to reoccupy in us. He argues that they have indeed done so. Now, I have not read this book, The Return of the Gods by Jonathan Kahn, but I have heard him speak of the thesis in some presentations that he's done on YouTube concerning the, the themes of his book. So I know what she's talking about. And he does specifically refer to Matthew 12, verses 43 to 45, where Christ talks about, we've talked about this, this story, right? That if there's a man who has a devil and that devil is cast out, that the devil goes and wanders around for a while, but then he returns to the man and finds the man's heart clean but empty. Meaning that, okay, he got rid of the devil, but he didn't replace it with the worship of Jehovah, with the worship of God, and with, with becoming a saint through the atonement of Christ. So then, reading from those verses in Matthew, then goeth he, meaning the evil spirit, and taketh with himself seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Even so shall it be also unto this wicked generation. Now, notice that he's not just speaking to an individual now. He's saying that that could happen even with a society, with a whole generation. So, Rabbi Khan, I mean, she calls him Pastor Khan, but he, I think, refers to himself often as Rabbi Khan. But anyway, he's Christian. And he says that this has happened in America, which is, of course, the new version of Israel. And although he doesn't have the Book of Mormon, he clearly understands what is spoken of in the Book of Mormon, where it says that God you know, first has a covenant with Israel, but then Israel breaks the covenant. And so there's the diaspora where they are scattered and so on. And before the gathering starts, the Gentile nation shall receive the gospel. And of course, the Gentile nation includes a lot of the tribes of Israel, particularly the 10 tribes that were in Europe and then came to America for the, when people started to come to this continent. And we have especially Ephraim in the early church and then quickly trying to send the word to Manasseh. And of course, gathering all of Israel, eventually making that the task and certainly the work of our day. But he's saying that the Gentile nations did worship Jehovah for a long time. And this is what we read in the Book of Mormon. And Christ tells us that when they stop worshiping God, then the blessings will cease. The day of the Gentile will come to a close. 
So remember, first it goes to the Jew, and then the gospel goes to the Gentile, and then again to the Jew, or to Israel, to gathered Israel. But the day of the Gentile is coming to a close because, as Father Lehi warned in his last speech to his children, his last plea, and his last testimony to his own children in 2 Nephi, first two chapters, 1 and 2, he keeps repeating in the first chapter about how this land of America will be blessed above all other lands and protected by God as long as they worship the God of the land who is Jesus Christ. But when they stop worshiping the God of the land, and as I said, we have seen the numbers. We have seen the diminishment of those who will even acknowledge God, let alone Jehovah, let alone Jesus Christ. And now we're seeing persecution of more and more of religious groups. Certainly the Jews have been persecuted, but apparently the Catholics are starting to be a target in some law enforcement agencies, there's some suspicion about Catholics. And of course, we saw the churches shut down during the pandemic. And we've seen a lot of anti-Christian sentiment, seeing us as haters and bigots if we don't accept the whole LGBTQT whatever thing. So there's a lot of push against religiosity, against churches, against belief in Jesus Christ, or any higher power. So here we have now The house is getting swept. We took prayer out of the schools. We used to hang the Ten Commandments in schools. You know, we've taken a lot of these things out of the public square so that religion is being pushed to the margins, and this leaves us clean and swept out. And if we don't replace it again with worship of God, then that one evil spirit comes and goes, gets seven of his friends more wicked, and comes back and enters into our society. And this is what Jonathan Kahn is talking about. It's pretty fascinating, actually, because he talks about, he uses the Hebrew word shedim, which means these negative spirits, these ancient gods, these pagan gods. The Greek word for it is something like daimonia or something like that. And that's the word from which we get the word demons. And he mentions the three big ones, although there are many of these pagan gods. Remember, the Greeks and the Romans had many, many pagan gods. But he talks about the three that... Ancient Israel was constantly being warned against, and they kept going back to those gods. Baal, who is, you know, kind of the all-powerful and kind of the god of prosperity and money and, you know, good harvest and all that kind of stuff. And he required a human sacrifice sometimes, and he really focused people on the material world, greed, and trying to get more than your neighbor. Astarte, she had several names, Astarte, Ashtaroth, Ishtar, But this was the seductress. And we talked about this in our Old Testament studies. She was the one that had the groves where they would go and do these licentious orgy type things that were supposed to be worshiping Astarte. They had the temple prostitutes that people would go and sleep with. And in the writings about her, Jonathan Kahn says that it clearly said that Ashtaroth or Ishtar had the power to turn men into women and women into men. No, I'm not making this up. Men into women, women into men. Are we seeing some of these things? I should say that Baal is often demonstrated or manifested by the symbol of a bull. There were many symbols, but one is the bull. I don't know if you're aware, you could look this up online at the British Commonwealth Games. Just in the last few years, they brought in a giant bull who had like glowing eyes and was breathing some kind of smoke or whatever. It was this giant mechanical bull that they pulled onto the fields in the opening ceremonies. And there were all these people that were sort of, you know, dancing in worshipful ways around him. Like, 
that's one of the symbols of Baal. Jonathan Kahn even mentions the bull that's on Wall Street. <laughs> it's the symbol there of, you know, prosperity and wealth. And, you know, I never thought of it as all that negative. And then I think, well, maybe it is part of that. Of course, we are seeing many, many more depictions of pagan or evil gods in our in our society. There was one that was projected on one of the big buildings in New York a few years ago. When I heard that, I wasn't sure. I looked it up, and sure enough, it was there. There are a lot of things. That, didn't they have a Satan com or something, a convention in Boston recently, where they were worshiping Satan, and they tore pages out of the Bible. They all cheered, and, they, and then people took pictures of themselves holding parts of these ripped-up Bible pages. Like, I mean, there's so much more flagrant worshiping of evil gods or demons or whatever. Certainly, I think something happened at the Grammys recently. I didn't watch the show, but I heard a report afterwards that there was something very blatantly Satanist that was done as a song with all kinds of people dancing around. And we're seeing these images creep up in lots and lots of places, more so than ever before. Okay, so we've got talked about Baal, we've talked about Astarte or Ishtar, Astaroth, the seductress, and the third is Moloch or Melech, the destroyer who required child sacrifice. He was often carved out of stone as a god who had his forearms kind of held out in front of him at a slant. And the slant, if they put a baby on those arms, it would roll down that slant into this big cavernous belly that was open where they could build a fire and they would put their And we've heard those phrases in the Old Testament that you made your children pass through the fire of Moloch because they would sacrifice their children. Well, who is sacrificing children these days? We have over now 60 million abortions that have been performed in this country. And we're not talking about those that are necessary to preserve a mother's life or to a victim of rape or incest. We're not talking about those understandable exceptions. We're talking about voluntarily choosing not to put a child for adoption if the mother isn't prepared to take care of that child, but instead chooses for convenience to dispose of the child, to kill and murder that innocent life. A society that does not protect its most vulnerable. What does that mean? Obviously, we're we're toward the ends of the end. So, this is what Jonathan Kahn is talking about. And you can see evidence of all of those things. I mentioned just recently, I don't remember if it was last week or the week before, that these values in America that were assessed recently after a 25-year period and compared to 25 years ago, 1998, and then 2023, that the value for patriotism had dropped dramatically. The value for religion had gone from, I think I'm making this up, as something like 63% to 39%, so a dramatic drop in the importance of religion, having children had a similar change. All of them were kind of in the 60s to 70s before, and now they're like down in the 30s. The only one that had increased was a value for money. Well, that would be bail, according to Jonathan Kahn. And that one went from the high 30s to 43. It's the only value now. Over 40% of the people say that that is their is a big priority. And that is now the highest. It's higher than religion. It's higher than patriotism. It's higher than helping your neighbor. It's higher than having children. So it's a reasonable premise. And I think it's fascinating that we have someone as different from us in many ways in our beliefs as Dr. Naomi Wolf, who hears this and also thinks like, you know, I can't think of any other way to understand what's happening in our world. And that is 
pretty fascinating to me, so I thought I would share it. Now, let me end on a good note. We know what to do. We know what to do. Let's just see what Lehi reminds us of in 2 Nephi 1, verse 7. For if iniquity shall abound, cursed shall be the land for their sakes, but unto the righteous it shall be blessed forever. It's not just talking about this land. It's talking about all lands where the righteous dwell. Unto the righteous their land shall be blessed forever, meaning that our personal stewardships will be blessed, that the Lord will still offer his grace and protection to those of us who choose him. We choose him and he chooses us. Now, what are the things we can do? The things that we've been talking about every week, we need to watch. We need to keep changing into a better version of ourselves, that daily repentance. We need to heal the relationships that we can. We can't make other people change, but we can heal the relationship on our side of things That may mean that we need to separate from people who are toxic. So I'm not saying we should make ourselves victims. I never want to make it sound like I'm saying that because I'm not. This is not about being a victim. It's being a non-victim Christian, but healing the things that we can heal through our own behavior. If others are willing to make appropriate changes from being dangerous to not dangerous or toxic to non-toxic, we can then reunite with those. But we can at least make sure that we're not the ones bringing the toxicity or the anger or the lack of forgiveness. President Nelson's talking about that so much lately. We need to come out from Babylon and be a separate people, to become a Zion people. We can't blend in. We need to dress differently. We need to talk differently. We need to associate with each other in different ways. We need to associate with the world at large in better ways and let that our lights shine. We need to be visibly different from the people around us in the way that we conduct ourselves and in the media that we consume and in the way our families are and how we treat each other at home as well as outside the home. As Neil Maxwell used to remind us, we can't just have a primary residence in Zion, but keep that summer cottage in Babylon. We need to get on the path of sanctification. Part of becoming a Zion people is to pursue sanctification, because that is what helps us to become acceptable to the Lord, purified by the Holy Ghost, by the refining power of the Holy Ghost that absolutely burns out the elements of corruption that remain in us as an incident of the fall. So getting on this path toward sanctification and asking the Lord for his help and direction in this pursuit to seek that Zion life, one heart, one mind, no poor. We need to help the least of these as we talked about so much. And in doing all this, brothers and sisters, we are choosing glory. We can do it. We can choose glory. Just a quick reminder, if you'd like additional content or to help support this podcast, you can go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash choosing glory and subscribe. Or you can go to my website, lilyanderson.com and purchase a copy of my book, Choosing Glory. Those are available. And thanks to all of you who have done that, because that really helps me to cover some of the costs of the podcast and I can keep going. Let's do it, brothers and sisters. Let's choose glory. Let's build Zion. It's what we were made for. It's our birthright. We have only to pursue this path, and the Lord will bless our efforts. We can do it. Thanks, as ever, to my husband, Chris Anderson, and to Doug Larson of Point Digital. Take care.